Hello and welcome. My name is John August. Hello and welcome. My name is Craig Mason. And this is episode 628 of Script Notes, a podcast about screenwriting and things that are interesting to screenwriters. Today on the show, Craig and I will discuss how things get cool, then hot, then terrible. We'll have <laughs> listener questions and a ton of follow-up, including about secret projects and alternative screenplay formats. Something that Craig is always into talking about. I'm into it. And in our bonus segment for premium members, we will look at various fandoms and do our best to absolutely enrage them. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. That's why we put it behind the paywall. <laughs> yeah. If you're hey, angry with us, you got to pay us some money. <laughs> pay us, pay $5 to watch us get beaten to a pulp. Hmm. Fun. Craig, we missed you last week. Aline was on and we discussed how would this be a movie? We had yeah. some new topics for how would this be a movies. And also this week, I was looking through the chapter on picking which movie to write for the Script Notes book. And I mentioned like, oh, a bunch of our previous how would this be a movies have become movies. Mm. And so I had Drew get on the case to figure out like, how many of those topics that we discussed actually did become movies? Yeah. And the number is shocking. Ooh. So Drew's going to help us out talking through the things that became movies, the things that became documentaries, and the things that are in development right now. Drew, well, talk us through how many of these projects have actually been made since we discussed them. Twelve of these have actually been made as narrative Jeez. feature films. Wow. Or series. Also, Craig, you start to realize, like, man, we've been doing this for 10 years. So some of them I knew, like, the 1517 to Paris, which was about those yeah. Americans who prevented the terrorist attack, that was a Clint Eastwood movie. I knew that happened. And Zola, we talked about sure. at the Austin Film Festival, that became a movie. Do you remember the Hatton Garden job, which was the, was the, the old, old man guys? Who did, yeah. Yeah, the heist. Two of those happened. <laughs> they made two of those? Yeah. I like that you're, you're making that movie and someone's like, we've got to beat the other the Hatton Garden job movie. Oh, business. Business, business. But Drew, talk us through some of the other things we had in How It's Be a Movie. There was also The Act, which was the um, D.D. Blanchard and right. Rose Blanchard. Um, and, and she just got out of prison, right? I didn't really uh, follow that story. Closely. Yeah, my daughter has. So apparently our daughter's generation is obsessed mm. with uh, Gypsy Rose and her impending freedom or freedom. They all feel like yeah. she's like become a cult hero among among the children. Because she murders. <laughs> what else we got, Drew? There was also the Mandela effect, which mm -hmm. was just sort of the idea that we had talked about, but they made it into a feature. Okay. There's Stolen by My Mother, the Kamaya Mobley story. All right. Okay. Which was the young woman who discovered she was kidnapped as a baby by the woman she thought was her mom. I don't even okay. remember that one. I don't remember that one at all. Oh. There's the Danish series, The Investigation, which is about Kim oh, Wall's yeah. murder. Of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a submarine murder. That's right. Yeah. yeah. 6888, which is in post-production right now, but Tyler Perry directed it. It's about the uh, 6888th Central Postal Directory Battalion, which was the predominantly black battalion of women during World War II in the Army Corps. I do remember that. I remember thinking, like, mm -hmm. is there enough of a story there? It was like it was a part of history I didn't know existed. Yeah. Um, so we'll see if there's a there's a story there. Yeah. We have How to Murder Your Husband, which was about the woman who wrote the book <laughs> How to Murder Your Husband and then murdered her husband. <laughs> Oh, yeah. murder lady, come on. It's a great title, so that's why it yeah. needs to happen. How to murder your husband. Step one, don't write a thing about how to murder your husband. Yeah, it, it can actually go on endlessly because if you make the, the yes. uh, movie called How to Murder Your Husband, everyone's going to suspect you of murdering your husband. It's, oh, it's perfect. Now I'm rooting for that person to murder their husband. What else did yeah. we do? 
Death Saved My Life, they made into a Lifetime movie, which is the the wife who showed up at her own funeral um, because her husband <laughs> had her killed, but not well. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Death Saved My Life. Yeah, I guess that's a good title. It's a, it's a, good, it's a good Lifetime title. It's a, it's a good book title. So yeah. sure, I'll, I'll get that. Yeah, I'm with them. There's Dumb Money, which came out last yeah. year. Sure. Yeah, so we talked about that. Yep. And so it was about the GameStop uh, situation and story. And yep. uh, not at all surprised that happened. No, I mean, considering that I I personally received multiple calls from multiple yes. companies about it. <laughs> As I was like, I say, yeah. okay, apparently they're making this thing. Uh, Craig, you and I should have both taken the job for different companies and just raced to see which oh, one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like just go head to head in the theaters. <laughs> yep. And then finally, Holiday Road, which I think might have been a TV movie, but that was the 13 stranded strangers who all rent a van together when they can't get a flight. Okay, so here's my question. Of all of these, how was our batting average on predicting whether or not they would be made? Oh, that could be a good follow-up for Drew, because I don't think you went through and looked at that. But Drew, maybe for next week, can you take a look at all of those movies? How many did we say, okay, that's definitely going to happen? Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, and, and similarly, were there anywhere we were like, never in a million years will anyone make this? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm excited to see. Yeah. We'll put it on the blog so people can see which of these movies happened, which ones didn't. But I, you also found 10 things that are in development. So including, Jeez. what about Jim Obergefell, the Hulk Hogan Gawker lawsuit, Dr. James Barry, who was a, a gender-fluid Victorian doctor, mm. which I remember we thought was really interesting. Yep. And apparently his Rachel Vice feels like the perfect casting for that. That's great. There's a PTA mom for drug dealing. Uh, you may want to marry my husband. These witchy founders who formed a fake oh, male yep, co-founder. I that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brie Larson got that one. Oh, yeah, nice. Perfect. Nice. Yeah. The McDonald's Monopoly. Oh, yeah. That one is a great one. The Scottish Hip Hop Hoax. Oh, yeah. Sam Bankman Freed and FTX. There's sure. a bunch of those things. That, and that was also a thing that came to me yeah. a couple of times. Yeah. There probably will be a Sam Bankman Freed movie. Yeah. I think it's tough. I think the relative lack of success of dumb money is going to very much hurt the Sam Bankman-Fried uh, movie, but we'll see. Yeah, well, uh, they're going to make it anyway. Yeah. And George Santos, there's at least one movie. <laughs> well, that's right, we talked about that. The George Santos movie, the one that uh, Frank Rich is doing. I mean, all I need to know is Frank Rich. I'm in. Uh, that's great. So this is pretty remarkable. And, and similarly, I'm kind of interested to see if any of these we thought were not even worthy of development. Yeah. The question, of course, the the conceited question is, hey, are people listening to us and then just rushing out to get this stuff? But I suspect not. I suspect it's there is an industry of assistants that are doing nothing but BuzzFeed style collating whatever buzzy news item of the day is and then putting it in mm-hmm. front of people. And then there's just a general race to get rights and make a thing. It is amazing how many of these are getting made. Yeah. I was just surprised the total numbers here. And we'll also include in the blog post the ones that were made as documentaries, because I think a thing we often talked about is like, is the best version of this the fictionalized version or do we just want to see the documentary series that tracks that, which in some cases may be more compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, very interesting. All right, well, good to know that we're not just wildly off, at least yeah. with the things we're considering. And, you know, I root for all, I root for all movies. Yeah, I root for movies and yeah. TV series. Yep. All right, some more follow-up. Um, we talked in two episodes ago about accurate but distracting. So things that are, um, if you put them in your script, they might be actually accurate to what happens in real life, but would be distracting to the viewer or to the reader. And with some follow-up from that. Yep. Richard in Boston writes, there's an example of this that historical fiction writers have to deal with called the Tiffany problem. So it was coined by fantasy writer Joe Walton. 
The Tiffany problem describes the tension between historical fact and the average everyday person's idea of history. So if you're reading a book that takes place in medieval times, you'll have trouble believing that a character's name could be Tiffany, even though Tiffany is actually a medieval name that goes back to the 12th century. But in our modern perception of the medieval world, Tiffany just doesn't fit. So even though authors may research carefully and want to include historically accurate information in their book, like a medieval character named Tiffany, a popular audience likely won't buy it. Wow. Totally tracks. And I, I love that as a name for that phenomenon. Yeah, that, that really does track. I, I would absolutely be stopped in my tracks mm-hmm. if uh, there was a scene in a medieval story and Tiffany shows up. That, that, that would seem anachronistic, and I guess that's a great example. Um, and you, I, I guess in the end, it really doesn't matter. There's no victory in saying afterwards, no, 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 Tiffany wasn't it. Because people are like, okay, no. well, I guess now that I know, that's interesting. But in the meantime, it screwed up my enjoyment of this story. So, yeah, Tiffany, Pro- all right, I like that. Now, I don't want to get Drew's mailbox overflowing with stuff. But if you are a listener who has another example of something that really does match the Tiffany problem, which is basically something that is is historically accurate or you know accurate to true life, but is distracting if you were to encounter it, I'd love more examples of that because it feels like Tiffany is great, but I think we can find more ways that this uh, manifests. Um, I'm reading, a a thing I've talked about on the show a lot is that when I want a bedtime book, I love a book that is really interesting and completely forgettable, like that you can read and then the minute you set the book down, you don't think about it so you can fall back asleep. Mm. And I've been reading some books on sort of counterfactual history, basically, what if this thing happened in a certain way? alternative history, yeah. Love it. And one of the, the stories I wasn't familiar with was Arminius, who's also known as Hermann, who's the uh, the German barbarian chief who sort of drove back the Romans at a certain time. And in reading this account of Arminius, like, oh, well, that's a fascinating movie. Like, I'm surprised no one has made a movie about that. Let me Google and see, like, you know, why no one has made a movie about it. And it turns out there's two seasons of a Netflix show that is specifically about that. There's just too much. <laughs> Netflix. Netflix. There's just too much Netflix. I mean, mean, at that point where you're like, it's almost like Netflix has become like Google, but instead of Mm -hmm. getting a search result, you get a series. Yes, exactly. It's insane. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so I looked at the trailer. It looks great. Like, oh, great. Well, this is someone has already made the thing I was thinking about making. Congratulations. Um, And what I will say, I've not watched a frame of the actual series. They shot it in Latin and in German, which feels great. That's impressive. Kudos to them. Yeah. So and kudos to everybody involved in making Barbarians, which I may watch at some point. I may yeah. not watch at some point, but I know it's out there. And I know that I, John August, don't have to write it. And that sometimes is the greatest relief. Apparently, we don't have to write anything. No. Because Netflix did it. Another thing I don't have to write is the Harry Potter series. Segway, man. So episode 623, I talked about a project. Uh, this was when we were talking about Bake Offs. Yes. I talked about a project that had sort of come into my orbit and asked like, hey, would you want to adapt this very popular piece of IP? And I'm sure, Craig, you were guessing it was Harry Potter, and it, it we can now reveal it was Harry Potter. They're doing a Harry Potter series for uh, HBO Max, or Max Deadline posted a story about who the finalists were who were going through this lengthy process. Yeah. And I wish them all well. They did find people who have good, proper credits, and I do wish them well. I do think it's just a very hard road ahead for them. I have no uh, inside information on this. I work at HBO, but no one has ever talked to me about, about Harry Potter, so I don't know what it is. Like, it seems like it's about adapting the books. That was what I initially thought. But then they're saying, you know, 
in this article, we've heard that the group of writers were commissioned by Max. So first of all, that's cool that they're paying them. Yeah, they're paying somebody. To create pitches for a series reflecting their take on the IP. Now, I guess my question is, and, it, and this is my dumb, dumb question. Yeah. What, what take? Like, isn't the, I thought that the idea was we're going to take each book and adapt it fully over a season because those books are big. And yeah. when they were adapted into movies very successfully, of course, they had to do quite a bit of compacting. But I guess maybe there's more to it than that. I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I would be terrified to be one of these people. So like they're way braver than I am. Just there's something very scary about knowing that there's somebody somewhere else doing what you're doing to try and do what you're doing and maybe we'll do what you do instead of you. Yeah. It's scary, but I do think on the plus side, they're being paid. So that's actually quite good. Yeah. On the downside, I could also see where this becomes this cottage industry where you're paying people to do these pitches, but you're not paying that much, mm -hmm. right? So like you're actually, the thing about pitching a season is you have to do quite a bit of work. Oh God, so much. And that's definitely an imposing prospect, but I guess for something that is as huge as Harry Potter is, and it is, it's almost as close as you can get to a guaranteed success, as far as I can tell. I can see why it is like this, but because I, I assume also that these people will have to meet with J.K. Rowling and get along with her and, you know, because she's always part of it. And if you look at sort of the attempts to expand the franchise beyond those books, they've not succeeded. They've succeeded in physical spaces. So I feel like the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, tremendous success, like those those things. But the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them have had diminishing returns. Hardcore Harry Potter fans are not as enamored with those as with the original books, of course. So it looks like, based on this article, when we don't know the inside truth here, is that some of these takes may be moving outside of the books, some of them may be more faithful adaptations of the books. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, so those movies, they, they still, I mean, I guess they did well enough for them to make more of them. They kind of ran into some trouble because Johnny Depp suddenly was in a situation, but they may have not been the size of the original Harry Potter films, but they still, I think they were doing okay. The Harry Potter play, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, oh, yeah. is a phenomenon. Uh, our friend Jack Thorne uh, being the um, primary playwright there. Well, the playwright. Well, I guess technically uh, Jack wrote the play Harry Potter and the Cursed Child from an original story by him, J.K. Rowling, and uh, John Tiffany. Tiffany. And then the Harry Potter video game mm -hmm. was oh, yeah. an enormous hit. Like, Absolutely. In the world of video games, there are some enormous hits. And when they are enormous, they they dwarf what we do. And that was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess I should restate that, like, they've had a hard time expanding it out as a filmed franchise. But this is maybe possible going to happen. For folks who are looking at sort of like, oh, what is a popular book series that did not get a good treatment? Uh, Percy Jackson, the movies were not a, a big success. The new series on Disney Plus is terrific. And so for folks who are curious about that, really worth watching. I thought it was just a very smart adaptation, much more faithful to the books. My daughter, who grew up reading those books, loved it. And uh, they really are quite enjoyable and was well cast. So difficult to get great performances from young actors and this succeeded in it. So it is. Uh, I'd recommend that to people. Great. Well, we wish those folks the best of luck. And I think, uh, I don't know if they'll want to do this, but when it's all done 
and the winner of the what is it the Tri Cup Wizard <laughs> the Tri Wizard Tournament yeah. whoever wins the big cup that actually turns out to be mm-hmm. a Horcrux or a no a Portkey it would be great to have them on our show just to talk about the process if they're willing oh, of course it's fascinating to me yeah I get it but I'm yeah. also it makes me nervous it does and also I think you have to look at are you going with people who are familiar with the movie series or kind of new folks and that's that's a, a, a challenging balance. I there. suspect it could be wildly off here, but I suspect that the Harry Potter books are transgenerational. That mm-hmm. people who read them as children are now reading them to their children. That they aren't going anywhere ever. Yeah, I don't know that to be the case. I, I feel like there's been such a backlash against uh, J.K. Rowling that I wonder if that's still the case. There is a backlash against J.K. Rowling on Twitter and social media, no question. I don't think that that is translated into the actual audience and how they interact with the stories and the characters. Mm -hmm. And I will cite the video game again as because when the video game came out, that was like thick in the middle of of J.K. Rowling and her controversies. And people were really angry about the game and angry at the game. And yet it sold sold a gazillion copies. So that's there is a disconnect, I think, um, between and. There's a topic. One day we should probably jump on the third rail, John, and discuss the notion of separating the art from the artist because oh, yeah. this comes up all the time. Yeah, for sure. Noted for future discussion is how we separate those things. Right. We'll find some other good examples of what do you do with problematic people who also made art. Yeah. I mean, Roll Roll Dahl. Uh, Roll Dahl, um, Joss Whedon. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. And there's that tendency to sort of retroactively discount the thing that they we're able to make and do because we now believe that they're terrible people. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's also this weird phenomenon of feeling guilty about enjoying something. Yes. Like Roald Dahl said a lot of really anti-Semitic stuff. Not mildly, <laughs> very. And I love Roald Dahl books. Yeah. I do. I love them. I I really enjoyed the Wes Anderson, Henry Sugar adaptation. And I feel like, oh, I'm a little like, ooh, should I... And then I'm like, but I really like the stories. Yeah. Let's talk about some UK writing credits. So at 625, we talked about, I think we were answering a listener question about UK credits. And we were said, like, we know they work differently. Tom wrote in with some follow-up about that. Tom is the chair of the Writers Guild of Great Britain uh, Film Committee, which is the WGGB. He writes, per the question from the British writer, I thought that you and indeed he would be interested to know that the WGGB and the Producers Alliance of Cinema and Television, or PACT, negotiated the screenwriting credits agreement way back in 1974. This agreement is referenced in the 1992 basic screenwriting agreement between our two organizations. Both these agreements are in the process of being updated as we seek to bake in some of the gains secured in last year's WGA strike. So thank you for that. We operate under a different labor framework in the UK, so these agreements are only advisory. Specific clauses can be negotiated out, though obviously we discourage that. Most screen credits are agreed in consultation between the producers and the writers in question. However, the Writers Guild of Great Britain does arbitrate on a small number of credit disputes every year following similar guidance to that used by the WGA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. All right, so it's, it's good to have some answers there. Yeah, and this is not surprising. Mm-hmm. The Writers Guild of America has a very legalistic system to uh, arbitrate and assign credits. It is contractually the sole arbiter and sole authority of credit assignation and other places there's that big 
you know, bus sized loophole that you can drive through, mm-hmm. which is advisory or in consultation between producers and writers. So it is not as strong of a system, presuming one agrees that the Writers Guild has the best interest of writers at heart, which I think it does. It's just that when you are deciding what credits should be, there are uh, sometimes winners and losers and people that don't get the credit are upset. Yeah. But it's good to know that there's something. Yeah. But I'm not surprised to see that it is not the ironclad structure that we have here in the U.S. Absolutely. I mean, all these things come down to power. And so in the U.S., the Writers Guild has the power to basically force this system upon the makers of film and television. But the like, Producers Guild, for example, does not have that degree of power. And so, but they have been able to negotiate and control and get people to start take their PGA credits seriously. And so that now when you see a PGA after a producer's name, you can recognize like, oh, that's the person who did really more of the producing job. And it's just not a person whose name showed up for various contractual reasons. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't. Yeah. I, I am a member of the PGA. I don't put the PGA thing after my name only because it just feels a little bit like a odd degree I earned in college or something. But if you were producing a feature film, you might be more inclined to use it, I suspect. I, I don't know why. Um, mm. I, I think what the PGA, because ultimately, I don't think people at home care. But what the PGA does do is leverage its agreement with the academies mm-hmm. to determine who is eligible to win awards. That is actually quite a bit of interesting power that they've garnered for themselves. And I think that ultimately serves as their most relevant function. So when the Oscars are coming and Best Picture is announced, producers will go up to accept the Best Picture. Those producers have been vetted by the PGA. So every, and this works for the Emmys as well, we get a questionnaire and they asked me, okay, what did these people do? Just tell us what they did. And I do. And then they make their decisions. More follow-up. In episode 626, we talked about the Nobel Prize and the Ig Nobel Prize, which yeah. I knew it was a thing, but I didn't know exactly what it was. Matt wrote in with some more specificity here. Yeah, Matt says the Ig Nobel Prize already exists and they celebrated their 33rd first annual ceremony in 2023. Based on offbeat yet real science, the prizes are often presented by true Nobel laureates. Matt says, I personally appreciate their method of preventing long acceptance speeches where an eight-year-old girl marches on stage to tell the recipients (laughs) to please stop, I'm bored, while the audience throws paper airplanes at the stage. Uh, That is very reminiscent of what happened at this year's uh, Emmys, Mm -hmm. where Anthony Anderson, the host, brought his mom. And when people talk too long, they put a camera on his mom with a mic and she just told the people to stop. <laughs> and, it was, and, it, and I got to tell you, it only really happened once. Um, and after that one time, I think everybody was like terrified of Anthony Anderson's mom. I think she should be at all of these award shows. There's really no excuse for it. They tell you very clearly you have yeah. 45 seconds, which is actually a lot of time. Yep. And some people go up there and just don't seem They think, oh, not, but not really. No, really. We're in show business. We all understand that there's like timing. It's remarkable to me that people just don't do that. But in any case, Anthony Anderson's mom or an eight-year-old girl marching on stage, either way, yes, genius, much better than the playoff music. Craig, I did not watch any of the awards shows so far this year. You attended many of them, so... (laughs) 
You missed give us, me. Give living. us a quick review. I mean, I how, lost, how was it for you? I lost. Yeah, you I lost, lost. You lost. I lost. You lost. You lost. You lost. And then I lost. But your show won many awards that we were did. not part of the main telecast, which yes, is great. Too. We did. So we won eight Emmy awards, which is one shy, I believe, of yeah. the record for most for a first season show, and that was terrific. I would have probably felt a bit more glum about constantly losing all the big awards had it not been that I was losing to Jesse Armstrong and Succession. He is such a lovely, wonderful guy. And have we not had him on the show? No, we never had him on the show. Oh, good show. Lord. Let's fix that. Yeah. We, we should, yeah. He's wonderful and so smart and so deserving. Also, there's a, a nice thing about certainty going into these award shows where you, you don't really have to worry. I didn't write speeches, for instance. You sort of go and enjoy that. And it's, it's actually quite nice. And I have an, you know, a few friends there that are also up for other awards. So Quinta Brunson, who we love, mm-hmm. won an Emmy, which was wonderful to see. And so you do get to see a lot of people that you've come to like and enjoy. I made a sh- sort of a shorter night of all of those things just because, um, the strikes had that weird impact of jamming four awards things into the course of 10 days. And, oh, God, man, I walked out of one of those things. I'm like, this thing was four hours long, and I feel more tired than I do shooting for 12 hours. Uh, it's Yeah. And I didn't do anything. I just sat there and was just, it's oddly exhausting. Now, everything has got jammed up, tied together, but the alternative is, like, it gets dragged out over the course of weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, which wouldn't have been... No, that, would, that would so. be worse. And, yeah, there's, there's, and, and it was a way, at least, for people to go, so everybody's schedules, once the strikes ended, everybody kind of accelerated into work. Yeah. And maybe not so much the actors because there's a bit of a a lag time for them, but certainly writers and producers are working at things. So there will be award shows coming up. We were very nicely nominated for uh, the aforementioned PGA Award. Going to be difficult for me to get down there and lose again because I'm going to be shooting. (laughs) So I will have to lose in absentia. Yeah. But it was kind of good to get it all done in this crazy pressure cooker 10 days because it was Golden Globes and then it was AFI and then it was Critics' Choice and then it was Emmys all boom, 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 boom. And the Oscars are right around the corner. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Our last bit of follow-up is another Arlo Finch. So Karen Finch, she wrote in and said, would you believe my dog is Arlo Finch? (laughs) He's nine. So technically I named him first. This dog is gorgeous. Look at this little boy. Oh my gosh, such a good what dog. What a cutie. He's got his little toy. His toy. It's so funny, like, my younger dog, Bonnie, is like a huge toy. She loves toys. The older dog, Cookie, has no interest in toys. Bonnie, like, when, she, when you come home, she sees you, and then she immediately runs away from you, gets a toy, and runs and brings it over to you, like, look, I have a toy. And it always looks like this, just ripped up and gummy yeah. <laughs> and dirty. Oh, look at this little boy, Arlo Finch. It makes sense. So this Karen Finch, so obviously her last name was already Finch. Arlo does feel like one of those names that probably starts in dogs and then goes to kids, basically. Like it's a a fun name for an animal. And then you start, you hear that name a lot. They started applying it to kids. It makes sense. Cooper was probably the same situation, but there were a lot of Cooper dogs. And then you started having Cooper kids. Cooper kids. Maybe Craig. It's possible. Some some used to be like a Scottish dog name. Great. So you you know that like dog names tend to be two syllables so you can yell out for them and they come back. And so like Craig mm. doesn't work well with a dog name. That's interesting. Arlo does. So there's Spike, Butch. I'm always thinking of like the cartoon dogs. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Fido. <laughs> Fido. What? Who names their dog Fido anymore? <laughs> oh, that's a good name. Though. Yeah, that's a good one. 
Craig, I think we've talked about a lot on the podcast, kind of probably from the very start, is that the screenplay format is well-established. And yeah. we've been used to it since the days of Casablanca. It's 12-point courier. The margins are a certain place. The dialogue works a certain way. Yes. Character names are above stuff. And so this year, as the Oscar nominations came out, we always try to make sure that we have all of the Oscar-nominated screenplays available and we can read. That's Drew's responsibility. So Drew has been a hero to get those all to make sure they look fantastic and we can read. We've got all of them except for one, which is Anatomy of a Fall, which is a fantastic script, a fantastic movie. And it is not going to be possible to format that in Weekend Read mm. because it is bizarre. And so mm. we'll put a link in the show notes to how it looks. But I also pulled out some screenshots here. Looks to be maybe in Times Roman, I'm guessing. It's some sort of serif font. They are our scene headers. So it's, you know, eight chalet exterior interior plus exterior day. Like we see that kind of stuff. It's all in French, but you can sort of, you can totally tell what's happening there. But there are letters for like A in parentheses talking through the scene description. It is in the present tense, like the way we'd expect this to be. But there are photos. There are photos of what the chalet looks like. Yep. Dialogue is blocked over to the right in a way with the, the character name above it, but not centered. It's it's just different. Yeah. And Craig, how are you feeling as you look at this? I love it. I love mm-hmm. this. So this is going to start happening more and more. For screenplays that are speculative, and I don't mean just spec screenplays that people are writing without money being paid. I mean, even things in development that are not necessarily uh, automatically going to be produced. Perhaps this would be too much uh, or unnecessary. But if you are writing for production, what I love about this is how many questions it answers for people. Because, look, I'm in prep right now. People that work on movies to produce the movies, all the department heads, they don't read these scripts the way, you know, people that are gatekeeping at festivals or development executives read them. They're reading them as instruction sets for what they're supposed to do. And the more information they can have, the clearer it becomes and the fewer questions the filmmakers have to answer. Because answering questions becomes the bane of your existence in prep. You have to do it. That's sort of the point. But the fewer questions that are floating out there, the happier your day is. So this is brilliant looking at this. It answers so many things. It makes so many things clear. You're going to end up drawing these things anyway. You're going to end up taking photos of these things anyway. And for a movie like Anatomy of a Fall, which is so specific about a space and what occurred in the space and the relative position of the window to the attic, to the downstairs, to the outside, This makes complete sense. And it's very easy to read. I have no problem with this whatsoever. None. Yeah, yeah. So it does some French things too, where they tend not to put an extra blank line between paragraphs, which is something I would choose to do. But looking at page 15, for example, there's a sketch of sort of how this attic space works and which windows open and which ones don't. Just super helpful for anyone reading the script to get a sense of of what the actual plan is here. So we'll try to get Justine on the podcast to talk through this because I'm really curious. It's gorgeous. How early in the process did she know this was the house? This is how it's all going to work. The other thing we always talk about is the alt lines and sort of how you handle that. But include a snippet here. Sandra in parentheses taking time to reflect um, or think about it. She answers, not always, but often yes, because of the wood dust. And then in parentheses underneath it, alt, often yes, because of the wood dust. Alt, I think so, yes, because of the wood dust. And so here those alts are there 
already in the script there as, as a plan. Great. And so it feels very useful for production to know, like, this is the situation. This is what we're getting into. Yep. This is how we're going to be doing it. Yeah, it's a perfectly good thing to do. At some point, very early on, when you enter production, or let's say you've been greenlit and now you're in prep, as a writer, you are confronted with how unromantic everyone is about creating it. You know, the, the parable of the, the blind men and the elephant. The makeup people see makeup. The hair people see hair. The clothing people see clothing. The production designer sees spaces, materials, construction. And they aren't necessarily plugged into your grand romantic artistic dream. They're just trying to make it happen. And it's so practical. And this kind of work is incredibly practical, including listing the alts, because then your actors are aware. You can have that discussion. You can decide on the day, do we want that other line? Do you, which of these do you prefer? It's all very practical. I'm in complete support of it. I, I think the screenplay format that we use is a perfectly fine format for people to read and decide, mm-hmm. would I want to invest in this? It's, it's, would I want to see this happen? It is not a useful document for how do we make this happen? That's just, it's just not. So this is very clever, very well done. I'm also, if we do get her on the show, I want to talk about sort of the decisions of when to be in French and when to be in English, because if you're reading this document, you basically have to be able to speak both French and English to parse it and understand what's happening there. It's a French script with just really mostly English dialogue in it. It's just such a a fascinating hybrid form. Yeah, Uh, which reflects the reality of the film where Mm -hmm. it's taking place in France and yet one character is often answering questions that are posed in French in English. It's delightful. Here's the other thing is we talked about sort of the Tiffany problem, like, you know, it's realistic, but would you believe it? As an American, you're watching these courtroom sequences. You're like, wait, there's no possible way you're allowed to do that. And of course, but no, it's France and you can do things that way. Yes. Um, The way that the prosecutor (laughs) behaves, just like, how is that possible? Like, is she like always on the witness stand and she can just stand up and talk whenever it's, it's, it's wild. It is wild. And and I think a lot of people had that natural, like, did they just invent this to make the courtroom mm-hmm. scenes were interesting and the answer is no and then following that there was quite a discourse of what is wrong with france <laughs> i mean they the way they conduct a trial just feels bad it feels, yeah, it bad. feels like incredibly unfair to yeah. the defendant yeah it so. really does like in a country where there is a history of of just chopping people's heads off um for political expressions it does seem a little like ooh, i don't like this feeling but then we know in for instance the the case in Italy with uh, Amanda Knox. Oh, yeah. The way other countries investigate, prosecute, pursue, charge, and judge is not like we do. It, it's interesting. I would love to hear from like international listeners because like they must see so much of the American courtroom process because it's, it's in all our movies, it's in all our TV shows. And how much has that colored their expectation about how stuff should work in their own legal systems, because they must have some expectation that's going to work similarly, and it clearly doesn't. Well, and the other interesting thing about the constant presentation of the American justice system is that typically, for the purposes of drama, the stories that we tell are of falsely accused people Mm -hmm. or of people who are guilty in the letter of the law, but not in the spirit of the law. Yeah, That's what's exciting uh, to us. But there are times where we do tell stories of people who are guilty. And the question is, are they guilty or not? And then, uh, Jack Thorne wrote a, a terrific, you know, the aforementioned Jack Thorne wrote a terrific 
miniseries that was centered around an actor who was accused of of sexually assaulting people. And it became a courtroom drama where you were rooting for guilt. Yeah. And that's an interesting concept that we don't often see. But even though a lot of American lawyers, if we had Ken White on, for instance, he would run down how inaccurate and stupid uh, American Mm -hmm. courtroom dramas are. It does at least give you a sense of our process and form, which is way more rigorous than <laughs> than apparently France, which is like, this is a free-for-all. This is kind of exciting, though. Yeah. All right. So for our main topic, I want to talk a little bit about fandom and mm. sort of the dynamics of fandom. And this all, jumping off point, was a blog post I read, which turned out was all from 2015. So it's a little dated there. But I really liked how he laid out kind of how subcultures become fandoms, become these bigger things and tend to ultimately implode or, or get uh, warped. And so this is a post by David Chapman. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. But it talks through that generally the dynamic you see is that there is a scene where you have some creators who are doing a new thing. So it could be a musical new thing, it could be an artistic new thing, some sort of cultural product that they're making, which feels new. That then attracts fanatics who are the people who are not making the things themselves, but are so into it and want to follow it and follow those creators. Both these creators and the fandoms are geeks in the sense that they are deeply, deeply into it. This is, you know, more than just a weird hobby. It's becoming an actual subculture. Once that gets up to a certain critical mass, you have what uh, he calls mops, members of the public who are attracted to it and start to enjoy it, but they're not on the inside. So they get kind of geeky about it, but they're not actual hardcore fans. They sort of feel like tourists coming to the thing. And sometimes there's in-grouping and out-grouping where these new people, you label as posers because they don't, they're not true believers. They're not really part of it. Um, but what I found so fascinating is he also charts it through to, generally you get a place where there are sociopaths who like become attracted to this movement, this thing that's more than a scene. It's become subculture. They adopt some aspects of it and ultimately drive it either for money or to do some other kind of nefarious purpose. Mm. And uh, it was a, I thought it was just an interesting dynamic. It's very easy to chart this to like the rise of the hippie movement. It feels accurate to a lot of the ways we see things begin, blossom, grow, and fall apart. Yeah, this is an interesting dissection of the phenomenon of phenomena and how things catch fire and become a social exercise. It, there are certain presumptions uh, baked into this that I think are worth questioning. Please. For instance, is it better to be a fanatic uh, than to be a casual enjoyer? Mm-hmm. So one of the things I think about as a person that does create things is what do I want my audience to be? What If I had yeah. a wish, how would I want them to be reacting and interacting with the work I make? And I don't think I have a great desire for people to be fanatics per se. What I want is for people to enjoy it. I want them to take from it what I intended to give. The fandom itself is separate from what I want. I just want people to watch it and feel things that I hope they feel and think about things that I want them to consider. I am not doing this so that people tattoo it on themselves or go to every show and get signatures and autographs and things like that. Yeah. But people do. And and I understand that because I've tattooed myself. So I get that. 
But I do question the premise that one kind of fandom, there's like a purer, truer fandom than another. I wonder if most creators are really just trying to appeal to what this uh, author refers to as mobs, members of the public. I think that's a, a great distinction. And also maybe we could talk about it both in the terms of the things we write and make. So, you know, Last of Us for You or Chernobyl versus like what we're doing right now, which is that we have, you know, fans of script notes who are listening to this podcast that we're making. And to what degree do we feel like we need to engage with that community that sort of forms around it because we've made a thing that the community is, is around it or that we want to distance ourselves or sort of not really think about and worry about that. And the answer is different for different things. I mean, I think with script notes, we do engage our community to a pretty significant degree, not the degree to which a YouTuber or a Vine star back in the day might have. Right. Um, But we are like, we're answering their questions. We're meeting them at live shows. Some of them are paying us $5 a month. There is a sense that we are attempting to service that community to some degree by also doing the thing that we we want to do, which is different than what you're doing with Last of Us, which has, you're trying to make the thing and you recognize that there is a role to which you need to go out and promote the thing and go to Brazil to do a fan launch of the thing. Yeah. And yet you're still trying to maintain some boundaries around your right. exposure to that community. Well, because the goal ultimately is the, is the point, right? Like mm-hmm. the goal of making things is hopefully for people to see it and appreciate it. And when I say people, I mean as many as possible. I don't think anyone makes a show or writes a book or or writes a song so that very few people will listen to it. And that there's this thing that happens when something is new, this author refers to it as the new thing, where the first people to appreciate it feel a kind of ownership. Yeah, They feel special because they fought their way to it. They found it when it wasn't promoted to them, when no one told it about it. They had a pure experience with it. And then other people don't in their minds. Other people are promoted to. Their friends tell them. But in reality, I'm not sure it matters. Because let's say I've never heard of a thing. And then I remember somebody, maybe it was Shannon Woodward. Yeah, it was Shannon. I was having lunch with her or something. And she's like, have you seen Stranger Things? Mm-hmm. And I, I said, no, because you know me, <laughs> watch stuff. <laughs> and she's like, there's this, this girl who plays this little girl who's just a phenomenal, there's, she's just doing this stuff that's just mind-blowing to me as an actor. And I was like, well, that's, that's a pretty good recommendation. I'll check it out. And then I watched it and I was like, my wow Millie Bobby Brown is really good at this and the Duffer brothers are really good at this this is great is my appreciation less valuable because I was told as opposed to somebody who's just flipping through the 4,000 chosen Netflix lands on something goes yes this I have unearthed it I don't know yeah I think we often have the experience of being champions of a thing that we want other people to see and our one cool things are like Hey, take a look at this thing that you may not have otherwise been aware of. Right. And that sort of, uh, that signaling thing is, is important. Like we're using some of our cachet and our authority to, to whatever degree we have it to say, like, this is a thing that is worth of your attention. And we sometimes seek out people who can recommend good things to us. Like a lot of the blogs I follow are basically like, I like that person's taste. And so if they're recommending something to me, I will click through that link because they don't steer me wrong, which is absolutely great and true. I think what's different though is, is it like the difference between like a recommendation and something that becomes a fandom is like a fandom requires some kind of organization. And yeah. interestingly, like a lot of times fandom 
it is self-organizing. It's not the creator who's going out there and sort of creating that community and sort of like organizing that community. They really are, they're just making their thing. And that community is creating its own rules and its own structure around it. And the relationship between that fan organization and that creator can be great. It can be toxic. It can be problematic. That's a real challenge. Yeah. What this guy is describing is fandom protecting itself, Mm -hmm. which actually has nothing to do with the art. It's only about the community that's built around the art, which I understand. When you find a community, it's important to you. Uh, As we all know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, belonging is the most important of the non-fundamental needs like, you know, food, shelter. You find belonging, especially if you are someone who struggles with belonging. Uh, let's say you're on the spectrum, you're on the autism spectrum, and it's hard for you to find belonging in the real world space, but you connect with other people who have a similar struggle over your shared joy of this new thing, and you get really deep into it. Then your community is now something different and important from the art itself. And what this is talking about is how to protect that. Because what happens as things become more popular is a lot of people enter the community that maybe you don't think have the same depth of connection to the work that you do. Or some people, and in this article they're described just fully on as sociopaths, enter the community for purely exploitative reasons, to sell things, to get attention for themselves. And then they can, quote unquote, ruin the culture, the subculture. So the truth is, all of this analysis does matter to a lot of people because most people are fans, not creators. But for those of us who make things, I think it's important to appreciate fans, to appreciate early fans, rabid fans, passionate fans, and the community they build up, while also maintaining that what we do is meant for anyone who enjoys it. Yeah. Anyone. Uh, There is nothing exclusive about what we do. There is, however, apparently something exclusive about the people that begin that first community. Yeah. So this is a thing I was holding back for maybe a future how this be a movie, but I think it's actually good to bring up right now. There's an article by Sarah Viren, which ran the New York Times this past week. And it's looking at this woman who's sister was murdered when she was a kid. And so like 50 years have passed. It's a cold case. But this woman said like, listen, I, I, I feel a calling from God. I need to figure out who killed my sister in this brutal way, you know, 50 years ago. And so she went, goes to like a crime con thing, a true crime con thing and meets these podcasters who had done similar kinds of things and starts working with them about like, like, how are we going to try to solve this? And how are we going to group source this? And the podcasters have a plan. They're going to build up a Facebook group. They're going to sort of get people involved in sort of working through this. They start putting together episodes. They're making some progress. The police agree to reopen the case and things are proceeding. But ultimately, this woman starts to have frustrations with these podcasters feeling like they violated some confidences that she had shared with them mm. and doesn't go on this one Zoom. And essentially, this whole community turns against her, like the actual person who is the instigator of all this, mm. the one whose sister has actually died. And... I found that to be fascinating too, because who's the creator in this situation? Is it the podcasters who did sort of organize this group or is it her? And who is the victim in this situation? And true crime fandom is a thing. And in this case, it's a community that was formed around this one murder. And the only thing they have in common is that there's a curiosity about this 
but they're not making the thing. They're just contributing. And right. that sense of online communities in particular can be incredibly toxic because you're not doing it something to someone's face. Well, it's also a question of what is it that you are obsessed with? Yes. Here's a, a woman who's obsessed with who killed her sister. That is a fact and that is a crime. And that's somebody that she loved and cared for. The fandom is obsessed with a podcast. Mm. So now they are interested in what is a, an act of creation. It's a show. Yeah. And if you care mostly about the show, I always yeah. think of this as the Skylar problem. So Skylar White on Breaking Bad, Anna Gunn is an incredible actor and portrayed Walter White's wife beautifully and had to carry the burden of a very difficult arc. Yeah. And there was this thing where the Breaking Bad fandom just started to hate her, hate both Anna Gunn and Skylar White. Why? Because Skylar's character was in direct opposition to Walter and his stuff. If she finds out what he's doing, she's going to be angry and make him stop. And when she does find out what he's doing, she is upset. She becomes sort of a, a co-conspirator and then eventually just no, no more. But her character was a threat to the existence of the show. If Skylar wins, Walter White stops making meth and there's no more show. Yeah. And what the audience cared about was that the show would keep going. And so they started to hate a character. And I find that fascinating. And I think in this case, I could definitely see where if the woman whose sister was a victim became uncomfortable with the show and was threatening the continuation of the show, the community gets angry at her. Yeah. Because they don't care about her and her justice. They care about the show. And that is where fandom gets a little squiggly when you're dealing with stuff that isn't purely fictional, but rather a presentation of truth. Absolutely. So in our bonus segment, premium members, I want to continue this conversation and sort of talking about different fandoms and degree to which uh, it feels like the creators have some control over that and degree to which the creators are being held captive to their fandoms. And which I think is a, a challenging situation, which happens far too often. Yeah. Uh, let's answer some listener questions. Okay. Drew, what you got for us? Brett writes, my understanding is that if a stage musical is adapted into a film, the songwriter retains copyright and the songs are licensed for the film. But how does ownership and authorship work with original songs written for an original musical film? Are they considered separate from the screenplay? Is the lyricist considered a co-writer of the script by the WGA? And how is that songwriter typically contracted? Mm -hmm. uh, so here's a question I can actually answer because I Yay. have much experience with this. So uh, first, Brett's assumption that a stage musical adapted into a film, yes. And so that the lyricist composer of the original Broadway or stage production, uh, they own the copyright on those songs. And so those are licensed in as part of the package to make the movie. And so for the Mean Girls movie, Jeff Richmond, who wrote the songs for that, and I don't remember who the lyricist was, those songs were licensed for the movie. Pretty straightforward. Yep. When you write an original song for a movie, and so if you're Billie Eilish to do for Barbie, they come to you, they say like, hey, would you write this song for this movie? Uh, you write it, it's phenomenal, and there's a separate contract for that. It is licensed to be in the, the movie. It's relatively clean. It's similar to sort of how it would have worked the other way around, like if the song had previously existed. Right. What gets to be complicated is when 
you are writing stuff that is fundamentally integrated into the movie. So for Corpse Bride or for Frank and Weenie, I wrote songs. And for Big Fish, I wrote songs into the script that became part of the movie. And those, I, I was not contracted separately. They were just part of the script. And so they were folded into my writing fee for writing the movie. But those songs, which also Danny Elfman would then do the music for, also exist separately. And so I'm paid separately for those, for royalties and for all the other kind of music-y things that songwriters get paid for. Yes. So I get separate checks for each of those things. So when it plays in Norway, I get 13 cents and those checks accumulate separately by different accounting systems. So ASCAP or BMI. Yep. I've done the same. That's how it works. You do retain authorship of those songs. I have the distinct honor of receiving checks from ASCAP every now and then for a song called Douchebag of the Year <laughs> in superhero movie, which, you know, how many people can boast that, John? Very few. It's nice. I wrote a rap song for Scary Movie 3. I, yeah, and I get, I get uh, royalties for writing the lyrics. So yeah, your, your outline is exactly correct. Authorship of lyrics and authorship of, of music will always generate royalties through ASCAP and BMI. And not only if they're played just on their own, but also if they're played in the movie. Yeah. So it is a, an interesting hybrid there. But um, generally speaking, you do retain more rights and more financial interest with songs than you do with, say, a work for hire as a script. Because yeah. in that case, it's you're really relying on the WGA formula for residuals and nothing else. So one other question embedded in here. Is the lyricist considered a co-writer of the script by the WGA? No. Generally, no. As a thing we've talked about with Rachel Bloom a couple of times is that writing the songs for things like Crazy Ass Girlfriend, she's often writing like actual story material. She's writing everything that happens in the song. It's, it's, it's like she's not just writing dialogue, but she's writing a whole sequence. And you could imagine there could be scenarios in which so much is like the songs are so much of what the actual story is that it crosses into situations where it really should be considered literary material that goes into WJ arbitrations. Maybe that's happened in the past, yep. but classically, no, it's not considered um, literary material in that same way. Right. Generally, no. If you're dealing with something that is a recitative where everything is sung, for instance, Les Mis, then certainly I think the Writers Guild has the ability through its pre-arbitration structure and participating writer investigations to say, hey, look, even though this isn't a lyric format, it is dialogue. It is screenplay material. It is literary material. So we have the ability to be flexible on that front and to, to pose the questions and then ask them. And it's another reason why the WGA's sole authority is important um, because it can, as an institution, allow for some flexibility and exclusions and exceptions. There are ways for it to, to actually account for unique properties like that. Yeah. Next question. Kalen in Alaska writes, are there best practices to follow as to not break up scenes or dialogue in an annoying way? I specifically mean when a scene begins at the bottom of a page and only like one line of scene description fits, or when dialogue gets broken between two pages in a way that feels like it might break up the reading of the line. My brain really wants that soothing feeling of a scene starting at the top of a page. Yeah, I'll tell you what my brain wants, Kalen. My brain is trying to anagram Kalen and Alaska together. There's so many overlapping letters. I love it. <laughs> Best practices are what you feel good with, what makes you happy. Most people reading, my opinion, don't care. Yeah. For me as a writer, I care so much. 
I don't like splitting up dialogue across pages. If I can mitigate that, I do. Because it just, I don't know, I don't like it. It just feels bad. Yeah. If you can avoid ending a scene with a single line of action that's on the, the subsequent page and then start a new scene, yeah, do it. Avoid it. And it's actually not that hard to do. As long as you don't get into a situation where you're actually hurting things to make it look better on the page, you're fine. My brain wants that soothing feeling as well, and there's nothing wrong with a little self-soothing there as far as I'm concerned. So here's one situation where screenwriting software, you know, from Final Draft to Fade In, Highland, all the legitimate applications are going to be doing some of this work for you. So um, what they will all do is they will not let you start a scene at the very bottom of a page. They'll push that scene header to the next page. Right. Um, if there's a single line on the next uh, page, they'll pull stuff across so that you don't have like a little orphan or widow there happening. Some of that stuff happens automatically. What Craig is describing is generally kind of the last looks before you're printing or turning in a script to somebody is just going through it one last time and say like, are there any really weird breaks that I want to fix here? And seeing if there's ways you can pull stuff, you know, push it down or pull it across so you don't get those weird, those weirdos there. I used to be much more of a freak about it and I kind of, I just don't let it stress me out too much. I will look for situations where like, okay, that's actually confusing because it broke that way. Yeah. The other thing you don't appreciate until you actually have to build the software to do it. Most of these apps will also break at the sentence rather than breaking at the end of a line. If your dialogue has to break across a page, they will create the break at a period rather than just like having a line taper off, which is just helpful. It just makes it much easier to read. Yep, agreed. Not too happy writes, I wrote a script in 2014 that became my calling card for many years. It performed well on the Blacklist site, found producers, went to all the agencies, got offered to a bunch of different actresses and directors, and spent years almost getting made. Then, a few weeks ago, I saw a deadline announcement that a very famous actor is set to produce and star in a movie with the exact same plot. Normally, that would be an, oh well, what are you going to do? But in this case, that actor was sent my script in 2015, along with an official offer of a million dollars to play the lead. This all went through their reps at the time, from reputable producers on my end, above board, blah, blah, blah. Now, I'm not accusing anyone of knowingly stealing anything, but I can't help but feeling like I'm being ripped off. My manager offered a that sucks, and my lawyer advises a wait-and-see approach. I'd rather not. Do I have any recourse, and what would you do? All right, so not to have a provided some context here, which Craig and I can take a look at, but we're not going to discuss on on, on, on the show. It is quite, it, the, the context is uh, certainly relevant. Yeah. All right, not too happy. I get why you're not too happy. Your manager actually here is giving you the proper answer, which is that sucks. Um, your lawyer advising a wait and see approach is that's the lawyer's version of we're not doing anything. And here's yeah. why. Unfortunately, and we've talked about this quite a few times on the show, premises, plots, these are not really intellectual property. They fall under the, the general heading of ideas. So let's say I write a script and it's about two guys who discover that they've grown up separately, but they actually, uh, turns out that they're brothers. In fact, they're weirdly twins. They're fraternal twins, but one of them is really short and one of them is tall and super strong and they don't look anything alike, but they, in, well, okay, that's twins. And that's cool. But that, what I just described, anyone can write a movie. Yeah, like, I could, not, I could sit down. And, no, yeah. I could write another movie today uh, with a different title <laughs> that is the exact same plot. And it is not legally actionable because unless you get into unique expression in fixed form, there's no infringement there. Um, if you get a copy of the script that this star is going to be making and they have taken like 
chunks of your action description or runs of dialogue that are non-generic. Well, okay, that's just straight up copyright infringement. They won't. They won't. So unfortunately, this is one of those things where we can't even say that the person went, oh, you know what? I love this idea, but I just don't like the script. Can somebody else do this idea? And maybe that's what happened, which by the way, that's not stealing either. Is it ethical? No. No. But is it criminal? No. You can't steal something that isn't property. And unfortunately, concepts and ideas and general plot lines, not property. Yeah. So we don't know the backstory on how this actor came to do this project, which is apparently moving forward. My hunch, though, is like someone else had basically the same idea and wrote it up. And the actor said like, oh, yeah, I've always wanted to do something that's in that space. Mm and said yes to that thing. I suspect that the second writer really did come up with that idea on their own. And because it's it's a good idea, but it's also an idea that a lot of people could have, honestly. And they wrote their own thing. The star attached themselves to it. If you cannot show that there's a connection between that second writer having exposure to your script and having decided like, oh, I'm going to do this thing, you know, that's basically the same premise. There's no case to be made here. No. Um, so you're manager and your lawyer are saying the right thing. Um, the lawyer saying like, wait, let's wait and see is also saying like, you don't know this thing is ever even going to happen. So yeah. if this thing actually goes in production and it clearly looks like there is an infringement case we made here, that's the time where she would raise her hand and, and yeah, do something. There almost certainly won't be. And let's also dig in a little bit on Not Too Happy here. When you said that actor, the one that's now set to produce and star in a movie, was sent my script in 2015, so almost a decade ago, along with an official offer of a million dollars to play the lead. Now, that sounds impressive, but the fact is, actors of a certain level are constantly getting stuff submitted with an official offer of whatever their quote is, or maybe their quote is less than that. They might not have even read it. Listen, I get offered things where someone says, here's something, we've bought a book and we want you to write this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, nah, I just, I'm not interested in that. I just tell my agent, ah, it doesn't sound for me. Yeah. So no, thank you. And then like four years later, someone that I'm really fascinated by starts talking to me about that book or a different book on the same topic. And now suddenly I am interested because there's just a different context to it. Yeah. Did I do something wrong? No, I just, I changed my mind or I wasn't in the same place or something was more attractive to me about this other version of it. The point being, what I think you need to do is let yourself off the hook of feeling like you've been screwed yeah. because that's a terrible feeling to walk around with. I don't think you've been legally screwed. And if you were somewhat ethically screwed with, well, let's look at the bright side. You had an idea that other people thought was worth making. Now, what you need to do for the next step, not too happy, is to write a script of an idea that people like that is so good they want to make that script. That's ultimately what separates the steadily working writers from folks who are trying to be steadily working writers. Good idea and undeniable execution, as opposed to good idea, decent execution. It's not fun to hear. And I don't, by the way, your script may have been amazing, but in this case, it sounds like by your own admission, it went to all the agencies, lots of different actresses and directors, and it just ultimately wasn't compelling in and of itself to get that next level going. And as John says, in this case, I'm looking at this article 
that talks about this. There are articles like this every five minutes. Yeah. So-and-so is attached to produce and blah, 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 such and such. And then it never happens. So who knows? Who knows? Uh, let's try one more question, Drew. Let's do Will here. Will writes, before Christmas, I reached out to the representation of a character actor I had in mind for my script. Today, they got back to me asking about financing. How do I answer them saying I don't have financing without scaring them off? <laughs> no, that, that's going to be the first question you're going to get back. So it's good we bring this up because anytime you're reaching out to a specific actor who'd be like the character actor who's like exactly perfect for this, the reps are doing their job. They're saying like, okay, is there any money here? Yeah. And the, the answer is, there's no money here. These are the producers that I want to approach. This is my plan going forward. Yeah. I mean, look, character actors really shouldn't be asking about this. <laughs> I mean, basically what the reps are saying is, are you offering us a job or are you asking us to attach a name? And Will, you're referring to an independent film. There's a long, glorious tradition of independent films trying to get financing using the actor's name to help them get financing. The financing uh, is like, do you have an actor attached? So everybody's like basically in a catch-22, but attaching yourself to a script ultimately isn't much of a commitment. No. No actor is going to say, yes, I'm attaching myself to your unfinanced project, and also I'm clearing the decks for these months, and I will take no other jobs for those months. That's not a thing. Yeah. No. So I think, the how do I answer them? Honestly. Uh, you answer them honestly, and you say, we are looking for financing. We honestly feel that we will have a much better chance of getting financing if we can say that this actor is attached and happy to play this part should all of the other things that need to happen line up, like schedule, payment, et cetera. And if they're like, yeah, no, we don't, we don't actually want to attach ourselves to this without financing, what you just heard is no. Yeah. And the, that, that's just life. Yeah. And is there a future situation where somehow you're able to find financing and you come back to that actor and suddenly they're you know interested? Yes, that could happen too. Yep. But yep. And don't bank on it, but that's possible too. So you've burned nothing to do this. Being honest is the right approach. Whoever the reps are for this character actor, if this is like a chance for them to be more in a lead role. That's exciting for them. So there may be ways which you can spin this is helpful. They may also know people who are like, relationships that you know that actor has with producers or something, there may be some way that it can be helpful. So be honest and open to what they're saying next. Mm -hmm. And these reps may have, we don't know, they may have been yelled at by their client two weeks earlier saying, yeah. stop sending me stuff that isn't financed and isn't quote unquote real. Yeah, I, I don't want to read it because here's the thing. They got to read all this stuff. Yeah. They got to read all of it. They got to get excited by it. And then they do, and then someone's like, great, we, we actually have no money, and we'll talk to you like in a year. And then they're like, why did I go through all that? Yeah. And the same thing happens for writers, of course, is that like, you yes. know, the approach like, uh, there's this book, blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's fantastic. Some cases I'm willing to sort of engage, and like, I'll, let me try to set this up someplace. And other cases, like, no, like, if there's actually a home for this, then I'll talk about this, but I'm not going to spend, you know, three months of my life trying to get this thing set up. Or, God forbid, help you get the rights by saying mm -hmm. I'll adapt it. Hell no. Nope. Get your own rights. Otherwise, what do I need you for? <laughs> nope. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll just go get the rights then. Yoink. Yep. Cool. Let's well, time for our one cool thing. Okay. My one cool thing is a book that I read over the Christmas holidays. For whatever reason, I just, I, I plow through books during the holidays. Um, I had three this time. One of them I really enjoyed was Going Zero by Anthony McCartan. So the premise of this is, it's fiction. There is 
uh, a joint program between the CIA and a Facebook kind of organization. What they're trying to do is to be able to track people who sort of fall off the grid, who disappear, and to see like how quickly we can sort of find those people, prevent terrorist attacks and other nefarious things. And so to test this system, um, they are going to recruit, I believe it's 10 people, and basically say, if you, we're going to like tell you one day that you have to go zero, you have to disappear, fall off the grid. And if you could stay hidden for 30 days, we'll give you $3 million. Mm. And, um, which is a good premise. And so we're, the story is alternating between the people who are trying to hide and the people who are looking for them. So that's that cat and mouse game. That's cool. Naturally, there are complications that ensue. So I read this as just sort of a, a pure, clean, like I'm, I'm looking for a good read. And of course, as a person who makes film and television, I'm like, I know how to adapt this. Hmm. But I did deliberately did not look up the credits of the person who wrote the book until I was finished. I looked him up. And so Anthony McCartney is actually a very successful, very produced screenwriter who I ended up emailing him and he has his own plans for the book. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen next to it. But if you are into a fun, breezy thriller to read, I recommend Going Zero by Anthony McCartan. If you read it now, then you could also see like what becomes of it. Hmm. It's sort of a, how would this become a property down the road? Fantastic. Good recommendation. Uh, my one cool thing is full-on Nepo baby. <laughs> All right. So so this is this is your incredibly successful father who gave you your career. That's, yes. that's what you're talking about. Yeah. You are the Nepo baby. Yeah, I'm the Nepo baby. My father, my father, was an incredibly successful uh, social studies teacher in the New York City public school uh, system. Yeah, um, without him, you would not have been able to find Chernobyl. So that he really is, yeah. Uh, he taught American history. Okay. <laughs> so actually, I didn't even have that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I speak of my youngest child, Jessica Mason, who is uh, currently attending school at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, where John's daughter is also there in school in Boston. And she is a budding songwriter. And has written some really good songs. Um, and yeah. she's written stuff that actually got, there's there's a song she wrote, talk about fandom, that yeah. was based on a book series on Wattpad, which I know you're familiar with because you also have yeah. a daughter. So Wattpad's basically a fan fiction conglomeration site, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And there was this incredibly popular series there. And she wrote a song based on characters and things from the series. And it actually got like, I don't know, millions of listens on Spotify. It was pretty remarkable. Like she was just, yeah, it's been, it was listened, uh, 1,300,000. Like she got paid money. She got over a million listens to that. And in a Nepo daddy way, I also uh, had her sing a cover of the Depeche Mode song for The Last of Us, but I did so because I think she's awesome. I actually think she's great. It is an interesting thing of creating a person who creates things and then mm-hmm. I listen to the things they've created and it's like this weird echo of creation but she's written a song called The Devil and um, she wrote this, the lyrics and the music and she performs it and then her friend Henry Dearborn who's a very uh, also a very uh, talented young guy produced it and helped you know add instrumentation and mix and all that and I think it's really good. Yeah, I agree. I'll listen to it. Yeah. This is a really good song. It's like, it's super catchy. It's, I think the lyrics are really intriguing. And so I'm, I'm making Jessica and her song, The Devil, my one cool thing. It is on Spotify. And I think it's, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I actually think you'll like it. It's, it goes down easy and it's got a good chorus and it's, she's just very good. I actually yeah. think she's really, really good. 
So we'll start playing the song now. It'll become our outro for this episode. But one thing I think is so interesting about Spotify is like there's obviously so many criticisms with Spotify, but the fact that Jessica is on Spotify the same way that Beyonce and Taylor Swift are on Spotify (laughs) or Girl in Red, like it equals things out in ways that are really fascinating and sort of unprecedented. So that's nice. And the fact that people could discover her and my daughter discovers music all the time on Spotify is exciting. Yeah, it is. And I'm, I'm very proud of her. I'm proud of how independent she is from me. Uh, she doesn't do what I do. She doesn't ask me for help. She doesn't ask my opinion. <laughs> what happens is it just appears. And then yeah. I listen to it like anyone else. And I think maybe that's what I'm most proud of is that she doesn't give a sweet damn what I think. And I like it. I love it, actually, honestly, yeah. anyway. Cool. That is our show for this week. Scriptness is produced by Drew Marquardt, Hello. edited by Matthew Chalelli. Yeah. Our outro this week is by Jessica Mason. If you have an outro, you can send us a link to ask at johnaugust.com. Our list of outros is getting a little bit sparse, so we would love some more outros coming in here. Ask at johnaugust.com is also where you can send questions like the ones we answered today. You will find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at johnaugust.com. It's also where you find the transcripts. You sign up for a weekly newsletter called Interesting, which has lots of links to things about writing. We have t-shirts and hoodies, and they're great. You'll find them at Cotton Bureau. You can sign up to become a premium member at scriptnotes.net, where you get all the back episodes and bonus segments, like the one we're about to record on creators and fandom. Mm. Craig, thanks for a fun show. Thank you, John.
shine, Lily. 